searches, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHDY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. Now you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at ydhty.com slash news for deeper commentary on this episode and other issues of the day. Now, before we jump in, I want to let you all know that we will be taking a break for the month of July to regroup and plan out the coming season of YDHTY, which will begin in August. And with all the territory we've covered over the past few months, I'm looking to continue to explore how American democracy remains resilient in the face of challenges such as climate change, dwindling resources, and a winding down of well-intentioned but law of unintended consequences provoking monetary policy. I also have a series on healthcare in the can I've been dying to get out that was derailed when Putin decided to invade Ukraine. So there's that to look forward to as well. Now, as we wind down the school year, we're going to try and summarize everything we've learned. Uh, and I'll be speaking both with Ben Studebaker and the Data Monk to get their takes. But before that, I want to veer into a topic that's going to be on everyone's mind in the coming weeks. Now, before the Supreme Court breaks for their summer recess, a ruling potentially overturning Roe v. Wade, that is, the ruling that makes access to abortion the law of the land, is all but guaranteed to be announced. And supporters of the court's decision claim this will be a vital first step in protecting the lives of the unborn, while critics argue this will reduce women to second-class citizens and place an undue burden on lower-income individuals when it comes to decisions around their health. My next guest happens to support both ideas. Destiny Herndon De La Rosa and her organization New Wave Feminists take a womb-to-tomb approach to protecting life and, as the name might suggest, focus on dismantling the structures that put women and mothers at a disadvantage in our economy. There's something for everyone to love and hate in this episode, and I really enjoy the opportunity to have a nuanced conversation with someone on the issue. More importantly, this is the third time I've discussed this issue on this podcast, and the first time the conversation hasn't been all dudes, so I'm feeling like I could finally put out an episode without so many disclaimers. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. We had a really nice, like, lighthearted, funny conversation, and now we're just going to get into, like, really heavy stuff, and it's totally going to betray the mood. I'll find we... a way to make it lighthearted. Don't worry. All right. Worry. I, I hope so. I hope so. So uh, setting things up, Destiny, where it's uh, it's May 23rd. Uh, as of now, there's been no change to, or how do I put this? As of now, the only thing we know about the Supreme Court's plan for uh, Roe v. Wade is a leaked memo that has yet to come out as a formal judgment. So as far as you and I are concerned, Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land unless 
something happens between now and when this thing gets released. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, I was you know as as I said before, really interested in getting your view on the subject. Number one, because your approach is very non-conventional. I think you bring up a lot of things that get missed in the debate. Uh, number two, you absolutely 100% walk the walk. And we're going to get into that for the listener in a little bit as to just kind of how you live your life and, and how you really practice what you preach. Um, and I'll play the awkward part of being the dude who can't possibly get pregnant talking about the issue of abortion which is, is something I'm far too comfortable doing nowadays. I don't know if you know uh, this, though, but it actually yeah. takes a, a dude and a lady to, to make the new person. So Really? I, yeah. I'd, I'd be interested still in your opinion. I know you don't have a uterus, but I, I still value your opinion a little bit. I don't. It's a, I'll tell you what, and, and it's, it's a tricky one for me because, you know, we're a democracy. It breaks down roughly 50-50 by gender, and yet it is something that's it, it pregnancy is something like you know we were talking to just to clue the listener in we were talking about moms and dads you know and their their roles raising kids and like a lot of a lot of like expecting parents like to use the phrase we're pregnant i don't use that we were not pregnant yeah no, your wife, your wife, one hundred percent was pregnant. I agree. That's, there was no we. It's pretty annoying. Yeah. You're not the one with the bloating and the gas and the vomiting and the hair loss and and all of that. I'm making it sound wonderful. No. as a pro-lifer, I'm making it sound great. But no, one hundred percent, the the female yeah. is the pregnant one. Yeah, we were definitely not pregnant. Yeah, not in the slightest. So it is it is an issue. I think that is much more personal to women. Um, I think maybe too to to set the stage for folks, you know, Destiny. I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk a lot about your org and and your background and everything, um, just to frame sort of my views on the issue and kind of where I'm coming from because I think this will probably come up in our conversation. You know, I was raised and the the listener knows. Like, if you've been listening for a while, you know, uh, I was raised conservative Catholic. Mom was very active in Mass Citizens for Life. Raised very very pro life. Um, my views have evolved over the years. I think the the biggest things that, that happened to, and I'll just cite two big things that happened to my wife and I, um, the first is that we lost a, uh, a baby relatively, like I would say later in pregnancy. So four months and typically for, if you don't have kids, um, you know, typically it's around the three month mark, you start telling people. So four months, baby had a name, went in for an ultrasound, baby didn't have a heartbeat. Um, and we, I remember us being in the doctor's office and it was one of the worst days of our lives. And we asked if we could take that we were making arrange, arrangements to, you know, we we're making arrangements to deliver more or less for lack of a better phrasing. And we we're asking where we could take the, the remains. And the doctor kind of was like, well, you know, typically we just dispose of them. And, and my wife, you know, the doctor left and first off, we loved our, our doctor, absolutely loved him. Um, but we both decided we wanted to take the remains back. You know, we wanted to, to ultimately we, 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 we still have them in our house in an urn, you know? And so, um, I, I think sometimes there's a failure to honor 
uh, a pregnancy as a child. I mean, that, you know, the baby had a name. Um, part two of that is, you know, my wife had some very, had some complicated pregnancies. So, uh, to, through all of her pregnancy, she had preeclampsia in some form or another, which again, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's pregnancy induced hypertension, it can be fatal. And, you know, I don't have to get into details, but there are some tough decisions that have to be made sometimes. And so we were, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the real time life and death decisions around pregnancy, the real life, really difficult life and death decisions around pregnancy that have to be made. Um, and so as I speak, part, part of the reason I say all this up front destiny is first off to totally monopolize the spotlight, because <laughs> why not? But, but secondly, is also to state that like, to give folks an idea, like when I'm talking, this is where I'm coming from. You know, th these are the things that have formed my beliefs. And I think that these stories very often don't enter into the dialogue. Um, so that out of the way, destiny, now I'll let you talk. Um, you, I, I want to get into new wave feminists in a bit, but I First off, I just want to start by letting people know a little bit about you because you, you know you have you your history and your family history informs your views on the issue, right? Yeah, I think that it's definitely a good place to start, like moving away from the political and the talking points and just people sharing their real stories and why they're passionately on one side or the other or radically in the middle, which I would say kind of both of us are in that place of understanding both sides. Um, so uh, my story starts with my mom when she was 19 years old at the University of Texas in Austin getting pregnant with me and um, single mom. Uh, really didn't know what to do. In very liberal college town, it would have been really easy for her to have an abortion, but she understood, um, really kind of rooted in like a scientific understanding of the unborn, that I was a genetically unique being. And um, to honor that, she ended up kind of flipping her whole life around, moved back home to Dallas, lived with my grandparents, um, struggled for a good decade. It took her a decade to complete her degree. She had a couple failed marriages in this time. We experienced poverty, you know, um, a lot of these kind of hard things that I'm used to pro-choice people saying, you know, well, you should terminate because you don't want the child to have to go through this. Well, I mean, I went through that. I'm really glad to be here. And if anything, I think it's given me a lot of empathy towards the very real situations like you're talking about, because it is complicated whether, you know, a woman becomes pregnant and chooses to parent or terminate or place for adoption. Like, there's trauma involved in all of those options. It's it's always complicated. I would say even with a lot of planned pregnancies, it's still complicated. It's it's a huge thing. So, um, but that was kind of my upbringing, and so I had this belief of being pro-life. You know, this um, kind of abstract thought of of what I felt was a conviction. But then when I was 16, I became pregnant myself, and that's when it was like, okay, do you truly believe this, or you know? not. And, um, I did, even in that moment when I'm completely freaking out, the second line popped up, like I, I just went into this complete tailspin of emotion. And I remember just very vividly wanting to like rip my womb off my body and run away from it. Like it, it's such a visceral, strange thing. Cause with most of our other 
problems. You know, when you're 16, you get fired from a job or you fail a test or whatever, like you can go take a nap and not think about it for a second. But when something's mm -hmm. happening inside of your body, um, it is really terrifying. And yet I knew that I had nine months to figure out what my next steps were. Um, and at the same time, I continued going to public school. They gave me the option of going to an alternative school, but I was like, no, I need some stability in my life. And um, a lot of my peers came up to me and told me that they had also gotten pregnant over the summer and ended up aborting. And so I was in this really weird spot um, where there was definitely a lot of ridicule and whispers and gossip surrounding me. And um, that part was hard. The physical part was hard. Uh, just like with my mom, my boyfriend also broke up with me. He actually moved schools. So I was completely on my own and, um, it was a lot, but at the same time, I speak from a privileged, privileged position because I had a family that was there for me. They were a support system. They didn't kick me out. You know, uh, I still had really good health insurance and a roof over my head and all of these, um, things that, you know, talking to my peers who had chose, chosen abortion, like they didn't have those options. Their parents were kicking them out. You know, in some cases, the the boyfriend and the parents kind of ganged up and were threatening them that they needed to, to terminate. And so I guess I've always seen it from a nuanced perspective in the sense that when people tell me, you know, it's, it's a woman's choice, I saw the underbelly of that, where in a lot of cases, it wasn't actually her choice. So that's definitely part of, I think, all of that coming together is what um, has created the type of activism that I do now. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll also say a big part of it, like I said, is is not the political. It's much more, you know, if I'm <laughs> hop on a plane and the person next to me decides they want to talk and they say, where are you going? What do you do for a living? And I have this moment of like, uh, how long is this plane trip? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, could, I might be making this real awkward. Um, usually I just say, you know, I have a, a pro-life feminist group and we help pregnant women because I myself got pregnant at 16 and um, there were a lot of opportunities that I had because I had a support system and I want other women to have that. So I always root it in a place of like, this was my lived experience, not I'm this, this or this, because I'm actually, I actually don't have any labels. I'm agnostic. I'm an independent, like I don't fit mm -hmm. into any of the labels that I think people usually affiliate with being pro-life. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've got to ask before we jump in, how do, what's the typical reaction when you say that? Uh, when I talk about my story, it's amazing. It really is people saying, oh, that's really cool. You know, like, there's this saying that everybody loves someone who's had an abortion, which is very true. But everyone also probably loves somebody who has experienced a crisis pregnancy in some way. And so when you let people see this, this kind of vulnerable thing in your life that like, I've been through this, it was really scary. Um, I find that the human response is, oh, that's amazing. Like, I would want someone to help me if I was in that position. Somebody helped somebody I loved in that position. Like, I'm really glad that you had someone to help you and that that motivates you to do what you're doing now. So you would think when I say I'm a pro-life feminist, which I, I bury that lead real quick. Like, I go super fast. I say that part. Yeah. But there is something for everyone to hate. You know, you're probably either going to hate the feminist side or the pro-life side if you kind of fit into one of these like tidy boxes we've created. But um, when I humanize it and just talk about my story, there's so much common ground that other people have experienced as well. Well, and I, I think that's where you have, uh, I don't know if advantage is the right word, but where 
you know, you're certainly coming with an informed opinion. Let's put it that way. You know, and so you, you've, your, your perspective, I think, I think one of the, again, like getting back to something I said about myself earlier, like I can talk about it, but I'm always going to be at least one degree at best disconnected from it. And so, uh, it's, it, it, I think, I think it's, I, I would say it's very, it's, it's very easy to have a simplified opinion. Um, and I think for those of you who are disconnected, it's also very important that you dig and that you understand the issue before you, you really take a hard stance one way or the other. Um, can you talk a little bit now about new wave feminists and, and what their, what, what work you're doing there? Yeah. So new wave feminists is a consistent life ethic group. Um, which basically is kind of a progression on pro-life, but it means that we believe human beings should be free from violence from womb to tomb. So the whole duration of their lifetime. So we're anti-war, anti-death penalty, very pro-migrant. We talk about racial justice. Uh, We extend it into the womb when human beings are at their weakest and most vulnerable by also opposing abortion. But again, not in the kind of typical sense. Um, We really don't work to overturn laws or do anything like that. Um, the closest we get to it is kind of the periphery. Like we just signed on to a letter that, um, is standing against women being criminalized if Roe is overturned. Like we want to make sure that that doesn't happen because oftentimes they're the second victims in, um, an abortion decision because they either are being coerced or, you know, as Gutmarker points out, like it's financial constraints. That's the number one reason that most women make that decision. And so, um, you know, we weigh in on stuff like that, but our whole goal is not necessarily to make abortion illegal. It's to make it unthinkable and unnecessary. And you do that by giving people basic biological information about the unborn um, fetus so that they do understand the humanity of of the child. You know, they're a marginalized group. And when we look at all these other kind of progressive ideas that we agree with in people's vulnerability in um you know, whether they struggle with mental illness or homelessness or any of these other vast things, we, most of us, most of society looks at that and says, okay, in your weakness, like that's where we're going to come along and help you. We're going to assist you because you have this vulnerability. But when it comes to the unborn child, we tend to use these markers of development as reasons to actually harm them and um, to, to discount their humanity and their personhood. And so we really try to make it unthinkable by humanizing the child, but we try to make it unnecessary by just resourcing women incredibly well, whether that's on the prevention side or the practical assistance side, if they uh, do find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, because again, that's, that's what I had when I was in the midst of this storm of chaos where nobody could have been more upset with me than I was at myself. Like if anyone would have screamed at me in that moment, it would have in a weird way felt good. Like that's what I deserved. I hated myself for continuing this cycle. I had already been the child in a situation like this. I knew how difficult it was. And here I was repeating it myself. And I was so angry and mad and disappointed with myself, but my family wasn't, you know, they came alongside me and said, you know, the trajectory of your life is about to change. This is a really big thing, but we're going to journey alongside you. We're going to get you there. And it was just such beautiful support that I really want us to, you know, create that sisterhood within the feminist movement to support, you know, women who, who are in similar situations. So what are some of the, what are some of the bigger supports 
that you feel are lacking right now? And what are some of the supports that your org provides? The big ticket things that I think the pro-life movement, um, you know, has had the last 49 years to prepare for, but unfortunately doesn't have that infrastructure set up yet, is things like housing, healthcare, childcare, transportation. So those are the big ticket items that we uh, have women contact us and say, you know, I really need help in this area. And there are a lot of pro-life people who are doing amazing work. You know, they're not usually the ones who get the attention or make it onto the covers of newspapers um, because they're busy doing the work. They're getting cribs and car seats and diapers and wipes and stuff for women. And those are all wonderful practical needs that a lot of women um, do need access to, but they also need more. I found, you know, it's it's kind of the big ticket stuff. And when you have these small resource centers that are donor driven a lot of times through churches, like they don't have the ability to provide those things. And I do think that that's where we need more of a systemic structural change. Um, and, you know, as a feminist, and, and one of the reasons that I, people always ask, were you a feminist first? Were you pro-life first? I was both at the same time because, you know, my experience of my mom having an unplanned pregnancy, wow. but also the fact that she had to quit college, that she had to move back home, that we didn't have these systems set up to accommodate her fertility. And so you hear that all the time, you know, a, a woman shouldn't have to quit school or not go to college or whatever because of a pregnancy. I totally agree. But we live in a patriarchal culture that was designed by men for men, and it was never really meant to accommodate us. And so I think when we look at these big structural changes, in a lot of ways, abortion has facilitated them, right? Because you can look at a woman and say, well, I mean, you had a choice. You're choosing to continue this pregnancy. So how much should we as a populace be inconvenienced by your decisions. And it's very frustrating because I do think these systemic changes will help not just people with unplanned pregnancies, right? But um, families who maybe put a lot of time into this, if we have things like paid family leave, if we have affordable childcare, if we have pregnant and parenting housing on college campuses, like these are things that would benefit all of us and in a truly progressive society, I believe that they should exist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think the one thing you, you bring up and something that's, I think, frustrated me about at least what I've heard out of the pro-life movement. And again, those could just very well be the loudest voices. But is is this disconcern for what happens after the baby's born and a disconcern for everything moms have to go through, uh, in order to, in, in order to, to, to carry a child the term and then, and then raise the child. And I think it, it sounds to me like the area where you and what maybe you'd call traditional feminists overlap is that pregnancy is really a liability for women in a lot of ways in today's society, either career-wise, education-wise, economically, and, and, and really the goal should be to enact policies or promote policies that, that, that set that straight. A hundred percent, because, you know, we get challenged all the time by pro-choicers who are like, what are you doing for migrants and kids in foster care and all of these things? And we've taken that call to action very seriously and said, yeah, to be truly consistently pro-life, like we do need to address these other uh, areas. And at the same time, I feel like the challenge to the pro-choice side is if you're pro-choice and not just pro-abortion, then what are you doing for the women who choose to parent? 
you know, I, I do see these small little resource centers um, that could definitely use a lot of funding and help so that they can get those big ticket items. But it's not something that's going to be done by, you know, a handful of church ladies. It's going to take a whole society to, to do those things. And yeah, we do have, I mean, every movement has a fringe um, and our fringe might be bigger than than even just a fringe at this point. I I don't know. I see those people, you know, out at demonstrations. We participate in every year the March for Life and the Women's March. And so we go to both and I see a lot of common ground. I also see a lot of stuff I disagree with at both of them. Um, but I do think that we have to stop looking at all these movements as monoliths, right? Whether it's Black Lives Matter or the pro-life movement or the feminist movement, like there are really amazing forward-thinking individuals who are trying to change society for the better in each one of these. But I think because of our current climate and social media, it becomes really easy to take one bad actor and say, oh, this is what this whole movement's about, which is just, mm -hmm. it's not accurate. And I, I think that, you know, I'm in the humanizing business. That's what I do. I'm trying to humanize the unborn child in the womb, but I'm also trying to humanize the woman that I'm standing in front of who's screaming in my face with a bullhorn at a protest because she did, you know, buy into this way of thinking that she was going to have to have an abortion in order to, you know, have a successful life. And that breaks my heart. And so even if she's yelling at me because she just sees that I'm a pro-life feminist, um, I have nothing but compassion for her because I couldn't imagine being in her shoes where I had to make a decision, you know, and it, and everyone's calling it a choice when for me it was not a choice. And then having somebody say, no, you, you deserved better. So I think that when we get into the nuance, when we hear people's stories, I was actually able to go up to the Supreme Court a few weeks ago. I wasn't planning on going up there. I was, I was in town for a funeral, but, um, our mutual friend Mark was like, oh, there's a lot going on over there. It's right down the street. Let's just walk by. And so it was mm -hmm. 10 p.m. Mother's Day night. And we get out there and there's two pro-choice activists still left. And I mean, these are like the dedicated. You're going to be out there at 10 o'clock on Mother's Day. And we had the most beautiful conversation with them because I started by agreeing with one of their signs that was asking the Dems why, wasn't, uh, why weren't abortion rights codified. And... I said, don't worry, I think they're going to be. I actually think that this, even if Roe is overturned, it's going to be a very short-lived victory. I think that ultimately there will be so much backlash that it becomes law of the land um, at some point. And he goes, oh, I sure hope so. And I was like, I mean, I don't think I, I'm pro-life. And then he was like, wait, why would you say that then? And I said, yeah. well, because I think y'all are making a valid point, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the next 45 minutes, we end up talking about all of the ways society has kind of... Um, failed a huge swath of people. And this guy in particular works an hourly job. And he said, I had a really rough childhood. I had a bad dad. I think I would be an amazing dad because I experienced this like toxic upbringing. And he's like, I would love to have kids, but I can't afford it at this point. Like there's just no way. And he's like, I would have, you know, a couple kids already if, if this was something feasible. So it's not even something that just affects women. And then the woman who is out there, we end up talking to her for a while. And her mother, um, they were from Trinidad, I believe, and she had gotten sexually assaulted by this woman's father. And the mom goes and tells her parents what had happened and that she's pregnant now. And they said, well, you have to get out of our house. So she ends up having to go and live with her rapist and get married. And then she gets pregnant again. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually was able, thankfully, to escape that situation, but she was very locked into this horrific situation. And so now the woman that was standing in front of me at the Supreme Court, 42 years old, never had kids, had her tubes tied recently. And she said, you know, my mother told me that she wished she would have aborted me. And she behaved that way my whole life. And everything in me just <clears throat> felt so broken listening to this because why would somebody who felt like they shouldn't even be here. They should have been aborted. Why are they going to believe anybody else should be here, right? Like her own human worth wasn't there because nobody had ever loved her and seen her value and told her like, you you do have a voice. And, and that's what I told her. Like, you have a very powerful story and people need to hear this. There were so many breakdowns in that story um, and things that should have been corrected. But when we just stick to one side of an extreme and these talking points, and this is how you should vote, we're not getting into the nuance like rapist rights, which is actually a thing in a number of states across America. That's something that pro-lifers and feminists should be addressing. The fact that rapists can actually claim rights if they assault a woman and impregnate her. That's insane. You mean like next of kin rights, effectively? I mean like parental rights over the child that they... If, if a woman continues the pregnancy after a sexual assault, they can claim parental rights over that child. That is bananas. That's that bananas. Is, but that, but <laughs> this has been going on for years now, and there are pro-life groups that are talking about it. But again, not front page pro-life groups, and it's not yeah. something that, that's a totally a common ground place that we could all come together and fight towards. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you where I struggle. Hey, hold on just a second. I'm going to shut my windows too, just because my You've got your office mates. I've got my neighbor's lawn guy who like is like synced up to my Google calendar and knows when yeah, I'm recording. Yeah, he finds out when the podcast is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yep. Time to hit the Petruziellos. So I'll I'll tell you where I where I where I struggle is. Look, I was. I mean, I, I talked about how I was brought up and and the experience both my wife and I had losing uh, a pregnancy and. So I, I, I believe, I do believe in the, in, in, in the humanity of it. And I think where I get, where, where I get, where, where, where I get frustrated is in this effort to sanitize it as either a question of life or choice as either a question of life or rights. And I don't think it does any service to the, to the very, very difficult decisions and the very, very traumatic experiences many many women and, and let's say women and men, just for the sake of, of I'll lump myself into to, to this experience. But I think we don't, we don't do a service to their experiences, I think, and how difficult it is. And I guess you might, know, one of my questions or, or a question I was thinking of as you were talking is, and, and I'll, I'll try and figure out how I put this, but you know, losing a pregnancy is a very, very difficult, disturbing thing. And, and having to have an abortion is, is, is not something anybody wants. And is there a balance between, this is going to sound terrible, but is there a balance between how much you humanize the unborn and how much it serves to maybe further the damage to a woman who had to make that choice? I hear what you're saying. And, and I, I don't think know the answer that, to that, too. That's I, you know, but go on, please. I'm sorry. 
Well, I think that, you know, we have campaigns like Shout Your Abortion, right? Which are supposed to just make it, it's no big deal. It's your card into the feminist club. And I think that it erases so many women who, for them, it was a complicated um, Mm -hmm. decision to make. They struggled with it. But then they're being told, no, you have to be proud of it and remove the stigma because God forbid that you say, you know, maybe this is something that impacted you. And so I think we have a lot of women walking around who are wounded because they feel like they can't fully express that this was a difficult decision for them. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they still know exactly how old that child would be. That's the most common thing I hear from my post-abortive friends is I always kept this running tally. I knew when the due date was. I knew how old they would be. And so us you know, if you picture a woman with like a wound on her body and we're just putting all these band-aids of talking points over it, you know, your body, your choice, and it was your right. And so that wound starts festering. It gets infected and it infects their whole body. And in a lot of ways, I think probably radicalizes most of the women that I see at protests and things like that. Like they're not talking about it like it's a splenectomy or, you know, having a a molar removed or all the other things we hear it compared to, like, there is a deep level of emotion. And I personally think that we need to give them space and oxygen and not tie an agenda to their story or how they feel about it. I mean, I know women who have bared their souls with me telling me about their abortion trauma and then said it was still the right decision. I still feel like I should have done this right. But removing these infected bandages and allowing oxygen to get to that wound and women just to talk about how it impacted them, I think is the first step in us being able to have an actual conversation about this. And they haven't been allowed that, right? On the pro-choice side, you have to shout your abortion. On the pro-life side, you're a murderer with deep regret. And I find that most of the women I have real conversations with and I see them and I hear them, they're kind of somewhere in between. But that's the problem with these extreme debates constantly is we erase so many people. I I know a ton of women who have suffered sexual assault, become pregnant through it, and chosen life. And they get erased more than anybody in this debate because constantly, you know, I have some dude standing in front of me who's, well, what about cases of rape? Do you know a woman who has been there like and, and still chosen life and now you are using the most traumatic thing she's ever been through to win like an internet argument with me? Like there's dehumanization at so many levels of this. And I do think that's the problem with these extreme arguments. I just went on a rant the other day about the interaction that had happened um, with a state rep and a woman at a congressional hearing. And of course, I'm blanking on both of their names, but She's saying that abortion should be legal through all nine months. And this state rep kept, you know, going back. Um, what about at 10? What about at two? What about an hour before, you know, the birth is taking place? And the woman says, you know, I, I trust women full stop. And it was so weird because this interaction was bizarre. And then both sides claimed victory. Both sides were like, oh, did you hear this state rep? He did such a good job. And then the pro-choice side's like, oh, she did such a wonderful job. First of all, neither of them did that great of a job. It was a very (laughs) basic, like, internet fight that they had, you know, in a congressional hearing. Um, But what frustrated me about it was... I want to see the case study of the woman who requests an abortion an hour before, like the child is in the birth canal about to come out and she's like, no, right now I I want to have an abortion. Like that, to my knowledge, has never happened. I don't even understand a scenario where it would be necessary, but we throw these extremes out and 
we end up ignoring why most late-term abortions do happen. Yahoo just did a whole article about a lot of times is people not finding out that they're pregnant in time. They have to save up money. They have to travel, all of these things. So these are all different scenarios where if we actually took the practical instances where it was happening, we could say, let's find solutions. How do we actually empower women, men, children, right? Like in these scenarios, but when we're constantly just fighting with these extreme polarizing talking points, so many people get erased. So many scenarios that we could actually be finding solutions to fall through the cracks. And I think that's a huge problem. I mean, that, and that's really where, you know, ultimately, I think where I, where I fall in it is that because the issue is so thorny and because there are so many extenuating circumstances, I do think it's, it's, it, it, it's something where, is it an ideal situation? No, but is it one where the government should get involved? No, like, no, I don't think the government could do a good job of that. What, what, are, what are your thoughts, so? I'm, I know I said I was independent earlier. I might actually be an anarchist now. Like I'm at okay. the point where I think maybe the government should be burned to the ground because I don't yeah. see it really doing anything of substance these days. So it's really hard when you're in a movement that's all about overturn this one law and um, and then let's have 50 laws, you know, regarding abortion mm -hmm. in the future because I don't know that there's really going to be any solution. And so one of the things growing up my mom always said was it's not enough to be against something, you have to be for something. Mm -hmm. And I've found that tactic is much more useful. So if the government is going to be involved in some way, I think them being for housing, affordable childcare, you know, these actual resources that help the women who call me, you know, when the second line shows up, those things are much more practical than we're just going to restrict in this state because now you have opened a can of worms. And, and this is, I also don't think people are being very realistic about the fact that it's 2022. You can order abortion pills through the mail. You know, maybe your state doesn't accept them, but you have, like, I don't, I don't know if people have just never sent drugs to their friends before, but I have, um, like, cause I've <laughs> gone to Colorado and like, you just do that. So I'm like, it's not hard to send drugs to your friends, you guys, um, not promoting it in any way, but I'm being realistic about the fact that hypothetically, I, even... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, allegedly, maybe I did that. And so like, yes. it's not, if we are being realistic about this, I don't think it's going to be people having to even you know, travel to other states or these other things like, and so then it comes down to, okay, if Rose is, does end up being overturned and we have all 50 states with wildly different, you know, falling on this spectrum of restrictions and access, how is that actually going to be enforceable? And I personally think that this is a case where the laws have to follow the culture. The culture has to see the humanity of the unborn child. The culture has to see that women actually do have resources, both preventative and after an unplanned pregnancy occurs. Like, then there would be some sympathy. But I can tell you right now, you know, a decade and a half ago, I used to do sidewalk counseling, not like crazy person, bloody sign, nothing like that. Um, yeah. But I would stand outside with a pamphlet from my local late-term abortion clinic and just say, hey, you have another option if you need help. Like, we're here with resources. And I vividly remember seeing a boyfriend, I'm assuming it was her partner, like dragging this woman into a clinic by her arm and she's crying and doesn't want to be there. And the feminist in me was obviously furious. We called the cops. They never showed up. They didn't show up because when you get to the abortion debate, there's this weird, 
I don't know around it, right? <laughs> Where yeah. it's, I don't know that we are going to even be able to enforce many of these laws once they come down, because there is so much um, sympathy towards a woman who finds herself in a crisis pregnancy. And again, I think that's an argument for us actually giving women something rather than taking something away. I know you said you have to be for something, not against something. And so the statement I say is going to kind of betray that. But are we doing enough for the men? Because like I said, like you you said this earlier, and I, I didn't know this before, but it actually takes two people. I had no idea. You know, so thanks for just totally shattered my innocence. You've been living in Jurassic Park for too long. For, That's exactly for, it. That's ex- it's just frog you know, DNA in this house. Yeah, here um, in the real world too. But but yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the, there's there 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 does seem to be when you when you when we get into the debate, there's a lot there's a lot of conversation about the the you know the the role of the woman and and how the woman should behave and so on. Not a ton about the men. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole system surrounding fertility in general, the onus has been put on women, you know, for the last 50 plus years, whether it's through birth control. Um, fun fact, on average, most women are fertile for four to six days out of every month. Do you know how often men are fertile every month? Every single day. Uh-huh. So like 24, seven, 365 for more years, everything, but yet women are the ones who have to take, you know, this pill that a lot of times has nasty side effects and, and a lot of women don't like being on it. Um, there were horrifying trials where women died when they were first developing it. Like the onus of fertility has been on women for a long time, whereas men have, you know, prophylactics and those don't feel really good. I don't want to use those. And so like, okay, well, guess what? Like the suicidal ideation that I have from taking the pill doesn't feel great either. So like maybe (laughs) let's meet somewhere in the middle. Um, But there's always been this onus on females that we are going to bear the brunt of fertility, which is why women are the ones marching in the streets for Roe and birth control access and all of these other things. It's not equitable. And I think that's my frustration is, you know, both my mother and I, when we decided to continue our pregnancies, we were on our own. And yeah, you can go after child support, but, you know, deadbeat dads are a thing for a reason because in a lot of states, it's incredibly hard to even enforce that. And so without a village, without a support system, it becomes incredibly hard because all of it does often fall on the woman's shoulders. Hmm. So I would say when it comes to, are we doing enough for men? Like, I guess I've only seen the brunt of it fall on women for the most part. But I think when we are looking at setting up societies that work for everyone, paid family leave would be a great way to support fathers. And I think even just, you know, the economic system that we currently have, like the man that I was talking to at the Supreme Court who's saying, I would love to be a father, but I can't. Like, these are all places where in a life culture, which the pro-life movement claims that, you know, we need to have this life culture that respects life. We don't. We have a death culture in so many ways from healthcare all the way down. And that's that's a lot bigger than just overturning one one law. Yeah. And and to clarify too, what I when I asked about the men, I meant sort of making sure that 
they bear some level of responsibility of it if that was misinterpreted at any rate if it didn't come off clearly that's, Wait, that's i'm just really such a feminist i only yeah. hear like the negative when the right. second you say man i'm just like they get nothing clearly that's that's what that was sorry that's about that perfect no that's hey look <laughs> you've answered a bunch of questions i didn't prepare you for at all which i really appreciate because you just sparked my curiosity um i have i have one i i, I had i had asked I'd asked you prior and I want to, I want to ask you on this recording, which is there's so many areas where your org and the mainstream and what, let me consider when I say mainstream feminist, I'm making the broad assumption that the mainstream feminist movement is pro-choice is ardently like pro-choice not, and, and maybe a better way to phrase that is not pro-life, uh, in, in the same way you are in some ways, do you think taking on the pro-life moniker creates an unnecessary obstacle or, or, or maybe distracts from the, the areas where you do share common ground, where you could make progress together? I mean, I think that's a really valid question. Um, the feminist movement, the shift happened in the 70s. So you did have a lot of pro-life feminists who actually kind of left the feminist movement in the 70s when it became bedfellows with just abortion access. And that kind of became their number one focus at all times. Um, same with Democrats. There's, I think it's 21 million pro-life Democrats in America. And yet again, because we just assume that everybody has to fit into this box, like we erase a ton of people. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. For additional commentary on today's interview and more, sign up for my weekly email at ydhty.com slash news or find me on Substack. You can also find Destiny on your social media platform of choice or at New Wave Feminists, that ends with an S, dot com. It is spelled like it sounds. So... Here's what I learned today. The stories we tell to justify the all or nothing black and white approach we take to abortion in this country don't give women who've struggled with this very personal decision enough credit or enough space to process it. And I mentioned at the top of the episode that my wife suffered a condition in each of our pregnancies where a late term abortion could have been necessary to save her life. And I thank God we never had to make that choice and I also thank God that if we ever did, my kids wouldn't grow up without a mom because the doctor had to speak with a lawyer first. So it's far more complex than we give it credit for. You know, the flip side and something Destiny mentioned is neither the pro-life or pro-choice camps really do that much to support women who've made the choice to bring an unwanted pregnancy to term. And I've always felt like the best way to reduce abortions is to provide access to birth control and reduce the conditions of desperation that lead people to seek the procedure in the first place. And things like childcare, job security for expectant mothers, and equal pay could all play a role in this. The last point, and something Destiny said, is that overturning Roe probably won't achieve the desired results of limiting abortion. It'll merely motivate pro-choice activists to find means to make it the law of the land. And this gets back to a couple of recurring themes on this podcast, that the two major parties use wedge issues as a way to garner votes because it's more effective in an electoral system that rewards exploiting divisions in society 
and way easier than developing policies that would meaningfully improve people's lives. And oddly enough, if we focused a little more on the policy part, we might spend less time arguing about abortion and might spend more time discussing what it is in our society and our economy that makes motherhood so hard. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's newly anointed director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY's produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.